Well, hello there, and welcome to my podcast. You know, just about every day I meet interesting people, ranging from musicians to actors to entrepreneurs and adventurers and all kinds of folks. So I decided to start this podcast to share their stories with you. If you like what you hear, please share it with a friend. <clears throat> Ten friends. Good morning. It is morning for me, maybe not for you, but I am caffeinated, obviously, and very excited to welcome you all to Season 2 of On Jared. I'm thrilled to be back and to start getting more of these episodes together, and I couldn't be more excited than to start with one of my musical heroes, Mr. Personality, Lloyd Price. In some ways, I think about Lloyd Price like I think about Forrest Gump, and I doubt that comparison's ever been made, but I say it in an entirely complimentary way. And because they both come from these simple upbringings, they embark on unusual journeys, and they achieve phenomenal success. By the end of Forrest Gump, you've seen this beautiful, colorful story with twists and turns about a simple, kind-hearted, quietly ambitious guy who makes everyone's life around him better. They both end up getting drafted, they travel the world, they become internationally renowned, and they amass great wealth. But they stayed true to who they were, and they were never sullied by time or circumstance. Of course, Forrest was white, fictional, and wasn't terribly bright, and Lloyd is black, very real, and very intelligent. As my friend Carter would say, Lloyd Price is a zero-bullshit guy, and that's the kind of guy I like to talk to. Before we sat down to do the episode, I thought long and hard about how to approach talking to an 82-year-old icon, and ultimately I discarded about 90% of my notes and just decided to talk with him and simply ask questions about his life. And as a result, Lloyd did what he does best. He tells great stories. And given the ever-present tense racial climate in the world, we talked a lot about race. We talked about his musical career. We talked about Africa. We talked about his boundless energy and his new projects. And by the way, just for a little context for those of you who may not know the name Lloyd Price off the top of your head, um, Lloyd's a musical legend who is known as one of the godfathers of rock and roll. Naturally, he's a rock and roll Hall of Fame inductee. He was the first person to write a song that ever sold a million copies. Just think about that. Uh, he was the first black person to ever top the charts. His songs have been recorded by hundreds and hundreds of artists, including John Lennon, Elvis Presley, James Brown, Amy Winehouse, and countless others. He discovered Wilson Pickett. Uh, He's a wildly successful entrepreneur. He built jazz clubs, affordable housing, food products, entertainment companies, record labels, and on and on. In the 60s, he lived in an apartment building in Philadelphia with Joe Frazier and Wilt Chamberlain. In the late 70s to the late 80s, he lived in Africa for 10 years. He lived in Ghana and Zaire in Nigeria. Uh, He was the person that introduced Don King to Muhammad Ali. And trust me, we're going to talk about that in this episode. He was the promoter behind the legendary Ali fights, the Rumble in the Jungle, and the Thrilla in Manila. Uh, Anyway, are you starting to get the point here? His life story is absolutely incredible. And coincidentally, Lloyd wrote his first international hit, Laudy Miss Claudy, because of a coffee commercial he heard on the radio. Well, oddly enough, this new season of On Jared happens to be sponsored by a coffee company. So all the more reason I'm excited to get this going. Uh, the company sponsoring the show is called Kicking Horse Coffee. They're just awesome people who make fair trade organic coffee who like supporting people who do their thing. So naturally, we hit it off. If you want to check them out, I'll include some links for you. It's legit. But anyway... Lloyd was generous enough to come meet me at my home on a damn cold day this winter. We sat in some really rickety chairs and had a loud crackling fire, which you're going to hear, I'm sure. Uh, And we just talked for a couple of hours. So please enjoy the first episode of Season 2, Storytime with Lloyd Price. 
Lloyd Price, welcome to the show. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we got a lot of ground to cover. Your story is easily one of the most unique life stories I've ever heard in my life. I have spent hours trying to put together just a timeline of your life, and I have been unsuccessful in doing that. <laughs> there's so there's just so much to account for um, that I, we're not going to get to all of it in this one hour or whatever this ends up being. I think just to kind of set the stage, you were born in March of 1933. That's right. That's correct? Okay. In Kenner, Louisiana? Kenner, Louisiana. All right. <laughs> so if my history is right, and I've been doing research, so five days before you're born, FDR is voted in as president, replacing Hoover. And then he's president for the first 12 years of your life. That's right. right? <laughs> okay. So in 32, Louisiana outlaws interracial marriage. And in, I think, maybe the same year, there was a residential state code that was passed that said no person or corporation will rent an apartment or a house to a person who is not of the same race as the other occupants. So we are in full segregation. Right. And different entrances, different water fountains. You can't look at somebody the wrong way. It was a very intense time for race relations in the country. And as a kid growing up in this environment, what was that like for you? Were you afraid of white people? Were you led to believe that you should be afraid of white people? What was the tone for you? When um, I usually say, if you got hit on the head and you woke up and you didn't see nothing but Chinese people, automatically you would think you're in China. So I kind of compare that to being a kid in Louisiana. If you never knew the difference in one way or the other, there was no way to, to tell that you was in segregation or you were separated because you never knew any better. You know, you just, you woke up one day and you was in China. <laughs> but you couldn't speak Chinese. Right. And it's very difficult to, you the only one who understand what you're saying. That's kind of what that was like. We was in a slum speaking and nobody heard us. I grew up in that not knowing the difference. So I accepted second class, whatever they called it, citizenship, because I knew no better. I grew into not knowing anything but segregation. I had never been in a place, never had left that town, and the white people was the white people. My father and mother made it clear that, listen, never talk back to them white people. Well, when that's embedded into your head as a kid, that's your acceptance. Right. So there was... There was a sentiment from your mother and father to steer clear of white people. Absolutely. Everybody in that whole area understood it the same way as I did and as we as kids understood it. Our parents educated us to that point. That was a big deal in our house. Never talk back to these white people. Not just me. There was a black family here, a white family here, a black family here, a white family there because... We were all bunched up together down there. And, you know, and we all, Cajuns, most of my family spoke Patois, wow. you know. So we all understood each other. Right. We as kids played together until 4 or 5 o'clock in the evening. But that was it. So as kids, you're playing with white kids during the day at school? That's right. Okay. Well, we was not in school together. Our house was just across the street from the white school. 
And we'll go over on that campus when school was out and play. We all played together. Played ball, whatever we played, we played together. But we understood the separation. We did. It's amazing to me. So you, you, could, you, would, you were comfortable playing with white kids, but if you saw a white adult, was that a separate? Oh, that was different. That was different. That was different. That was Mr. Ike, or Mr. <laughs> Jake, or Mr. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> but now, were the, were, were the white kids being told, do you know what they were being told about you? Well, or were you just playing? Their, their clear understanding was that we were niggas, and they played with the niggas. That was okay. That was okay to play with them because most of our parents worked for for them. Yeah, you know, and it was just an acceptance, mind blowing acceptance. Right. But as I said, when you live in China, you think you're Chinese. I mean, right. you <laughs> you just don't know the difference. All right. So in some ways, it was comfortable for you because it was simply what you knew. You're playing with kids. That's okay. You go back to your house. This is just what you do. And over time. That started to change with old Jake, who I read about in your book. And I want to talk about some of those figures that really changed the way you thought about race. When did that start to change for you? As, as, as you got older, say you become a teenager, you can feel the difference. They start backing off away, like especially uh, girls that you had known all your life, mm-hmm. little white girls. They stopped backing off. You know, we had no idea to of what was going on in that family's house. But we do know there had to be a conversation because you could tell the way things start changing. As, changing. Yeah. yeah. And what made the difference with me and my brother, you know, Leo, we started this little band, you know, and uh, <laughs> I tried to learn how to play piano. Maybe I was maybe 12, 13 years old. I tried to learn how to play. And I learned how to play a boogie woogie. And I learned how to play uh, an eight bar blues and stuff like that. Yeah. So that stopped making a difference. It stopped making a difference in our school. And uh, that kind of kept us busy and contented because we put together a little young band. This guy gave us a break to play on Friday nights at his place, a place called Morgan's, you know, and we rehearsed, and we, we were pretty good. We were the only, you know, we were like the Beatles. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So did you feel insulated from some of the racial stuff that was going on? Because it, 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 let's say, you know, 11, 12, you're starting to get a little older. You start to feel the climate changing a little. It's a little more hostile. But if you and, and your brothers are starting to play music together, which is a social thing, did you feel like that was helping you to steer clear of some of the other issues that were going on? Well, the issues, we were not paying that much attention to them because there were other things going on. It was like uh, five, six, seven years after World War II. Our little town was being built up because there was two army bases there. And most of these soldiers would come into town. The town started expanding, getting getting right. bigger. So the environment started to change. It still was me, Tarzan, and you, boy. That didn't, <laughs> <laughs> that didn't change. Yeah. But you could feel things different because a lot of different people was coming into the community. But the law was the law. The sign on the bus still says colored behind the, behind the screen. 
we that we never thought about going inside of a white restaurant. That was completely out the question. Because right. it had a colored window in the back. We understood all of that. That didn't change. But what did change was the population. And when population started to grow, naturally, the infrastructure started to grow. And the attitude of the people started to grow. But it didn't change between black and white. Mm-hmm. As a kid, I knew everybody in the town. Say, when I was a kid, there was 500 people. Now the town might have 2,000 or 3,000. Wow. You know what I mean? Yeah. So that was the change of things. But the line never changed. It didn't, yeah. The line didn't move. Yeah. In the book, uh, and I want to, we'll talk about the book and particularly the title <laughs> for folks who may not know. Uh, you talk about Old Jake. And in fact, if I recall, you dedicated this book told Jake, didn't you? Well, Jake and people like Yes. Him. Yeah. <laughs> but Jake Jake was uh, somebody who was harassing you. What were your experiences with Jake? And, and and as you said in the book, this guy couldn't string a sentence together, but he was somehow, he became a police officer in your town, which must have been terrifying. Right. Well, if you were white in the South, say back in the late 40s, early 50s, you didn't have to have an IQ. All you had to be was a friend or a relative of the guy who won the election. <laughs> <laughs> and you automatically be, became an authority. Anybody white was an authority anyway over blacks or non-blacks. There were three, three types of people in my town. You were black, white, and chinks. <laughs> <laughs> It was nothing else in between. God. You know, and yeah. uh, it was heavily Italians. You know, but we knew, I tell you, what they did, they, they was the people who built houses and laid the brick mm-hmm. and stuff like that. The chink, he was the guy with the laundry and stuff like that. And the black was the domestic workers. I mean, everybody understood their position. Their roles. Yeah, right. and their roles. And old Jake, I don't know if Jake ever... He never was elected to anything like that. Of course, blacks had no voting power. Uh, there was appointments. And Jake probably was appointed to the sheriff, a deputy sheriff. And it just was a, seemed like a normal thing for, for white people to, well, I'm one of the, I'll just use the word pick on. Yeah. You know, we was a scapegoat for whatever he had, or whatever his intentions was, whatever anger he had, he took it out on blacks. And he was a key guy. And here was a guy stammered, you know, he, I, 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 right. Big fat guy, looked like he had never ever bathed, you know, and <laughs> he was, this guy was a riot. And somebody gave him a gun, you know. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's funny. It's not funny at all, though. No, right? but. <laughs> <laughs> God. He was a deputy sheriff. Did that make you angry? Yeah, if he, if he saw. I never was somebody who just sat still. I mean, yeah, well, I think about it now, you know, over my years of, even now, I'm busy as ever yeah, I've ever been. Busier than I am. <laughs> <laughs> I knew I never wanted to be like my father. I knew it was just something in me as a young boy that I couldn't take the stuff that my father took. My father had a plumbing business and he'd work, he worked for a guy named Mr. McGinnis. And Mr. McGinnis was a little short white guy. He had a set of four teeth and they rattled because he tried to smoke a cigar. <laughs> this is a funny thing. When my father saw his car coming, 
because he was in the septic tank business. He dig holes yep. and put in septic tanks. When my father saw Mr. Beginning's skull coming, you'd have to chisel that smile off the tree. Here comes Mr. Be- <laughs> Here comes Mr. Beginning. <laughs> it was amazing. That's you know, great. and I just I I knew this he did it, but I always I often wonder why does he he laugh like this and Mr. McGinnis come and call him boy. And my father had to be older than he was. So I used to wonder, I said, well, how old do you have to be before you are a man? Right. And I knew at that time it was 21 before, you know, you could yep. get from money your parents. But here my father, you know, he was almost six feet tall, and he had to weigh nearly 200 pounds. And here this guy weighed about 130 pounds. Called, hey, boy, price boy. You know, my father. He could have hammered him into the ground. Absolutely. Strong as an ox. My father would, man, he'd dig a. A ditch, you know, maybe a hundred feet, five or six feet down. By the end of the day, that's done. It's a whole hundred feet done, and he tied into the septic tank wow. or the. I mean, he did it all day long, every day. And then came home to came home to all of the brothers and sisters. You had, had 11, eight boys 11 and three kids. girls. <laughs> <laughs> and, and he's. I mean, that's that's a busy. He's as busy as you were. Oh man, <laughs> God. But, Jared, I knew I never, ever wanted to be like that. Right. I mean, I used to watch him sit on the porch. He'd light up his pipe and just smoke. I mean. I'm sure any minute of just peace and quiet that he could have. Yeah. He just wanted. Uh, or, or, or trying to find a way to take a breath yeah. so he could eat. Right. I mean, I said, man, from the time that I saw that as a very young boy. I'm never going to be like, I'm never, I had no idea what would do it. Our connection to the outside world was the radio. How many <clears> stations <throat> did you get? Oh, there was only one. We didn't yeah. even know. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Okay. Yeah, there was Thousand Waters. Yeah. And the biggest station was from WLAC in Nashville, Tennessee. Yep. But we couldn't hear that until 10 o'clock at night. And all the, we had no electric, so the lights was out at 8 o'clock. You know, it sounded like it was a radio session coming from Mars. <laughs> <laughs> so so you you decided, I mean, obviously you, you had a lot of brothers and sisters. Your mother had the sandwich shop on the weekends. That's right? right. She had the sandwich shop on the weekends. And your parents are hardworking, but you made the decision you didn't want to end up like your father in that line of work with that lifestyle. That's right. And you happen to also be playing music at that time. Well, Did try. You, try. Well, try. <laughs> but you had you had the band. You're playing at Morgan's. Did you make a connection at that time that maybe I can do music and maybe music is a way out? Or did that did that synapse not fire yet? No, it didn't. Yeah, it, it hadn't fired. Oh, hold what? On. I, I'm gonna throw a log on the fire. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> How old you were? Fourteen when you started playing at Morgan's. Yeah, I'm fourteen, fourteen and a half. And were you still in school? Yes. Okay. But I also was working at, at the airport. That You know, the airport was expanding. All right, hold on. So hold on. Let, me, let me back up a second. In the book I read, and I, like I said, there's a million things to talk about. But in the book I read, you started working at a very young age. You were carrying ice. That's right. Right? You were sweeping at a store. You are working at the airport. What made you get all these jobs? Well, because in our house, it was not about school. It was about family. If you got big enough to work, that was the whole idea of big families. Okay. 
You know, there was no video. There was no television. Mm-hmm. There was nothing like that, you know. So we were glad to get out of the house. Okay. In fact, my first job, I was seven and a half, eight years old, working <laughs> on an ice truck. You know, carrying 25 pounds of ice. You know? seven, eight years old. Yeah. What was your parents' view on going to school? Was it just go until you can work? Well, that's right. Okay. That's right. It was no mandatory, no law that you had to go to school. But they weren't looking at it as, as they weren't considering school as a gateway to something else or as a way to leave Kenner. It was just, this is what you do as a kid. But once you're ready, you go to work. Well, that's right. Okay. Education was, it was important to a word we used to call highfalutin. (laughs) (laughs) I know this term. Okay. You know, if yeah. you, it was nothing that would make us want to go to school. For what? Right. You either was going to be a cook, your sister was going to take up right. home was, economics. Right. This was all predetermined for you. Yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah. Or you can be a barber. All these were big jobs. Yeah. Or you're going to be a Pullman porter on a train. These were big black jobs. You didn't think about education in the sense of the way we think about it now. Right. Because it was not those kind of jobs. You either worked in a field, you worked in the lumber yard, or you, you dug holes. Or labor. Labor, yes. Hard labor. So you're playing music, and I want to get back to Morgan's a little bit. Okay. And, and what was that experience like for you? And, and were you really starting to fall in love with music at that time? Well, what happened was my mother in her sandwich shop, she had a jukebox. Jukebox held 10 records. 20 sides, A and B. <laughs> I knew every song on the jukebox. Louis Jordan was our Elvis the king Presley. Of the, the king of the jukebox. He was the king of the jukebox, <laughs> that's right. And of course you had Roy Milton and Camille Howard. You had uh, the Ligon brothers, Amos Milburn. You had Roscoe Garden. These were people just coming up. Yep. But they were mostly, it was an adult business. It was not for children. And when they would play the jukebox, you know, we would dance. I would dance, and they'd throw nickels and dimes on the floor and stuff like that. And then I began to realize if I could do something like this, ah, I'd see these big buses and station wagons come to town with these bands to play at a little club called Morgan's. So I never worked out in my head the economics of mm-hmm, that, mm-hmm. you know, what it, how much they was making a day. That never, sure. ever crossed my mind. Sure, It just was a way out. I said, oh, they're coming here from somewhere. And remember, our only outside world was the radio. So we hear them on this little radio station, 1,000 watts. And I start to thinking, if I could do this, I can get out of Kenner. Then every day that would sink a little deeper, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I had knew, how do you do this? Right. I had never heard of a recording studio None of the record company. It's I, just, it's just a, and there's no path to getting there. Total yeah. fantasy. Yeah, total fantasy. So how do you go from stomping your foot to Caledonia to actually making progress to get there? Dave Bartholomew. As a kid, I would steal in and to his dances at Shines. You know, he had to be 21 to go in, uh-huh. but I would, <laughs> I would find a way to get in yep. and hear Dave. Dave had the best band in town. And uh, there was a guy that sung in his band. His name was Tommy Risley. His brother and I was pretty good friends in school. And he'll tell me where they're playing. And I'll, for some reason, I always had a deep love for, for this music. And I learned how to dance. I probably was the best dancer in school and all that stuff. So our first black jockey 
Okie dokie Smith. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> I love the name. That's amazing. <laughs> He's the first guy I recognized as a black guy on the radio, you know, because, you know, we had no other outside communication other than with the radio. Right. And to hear a voice similar to your own coming back that to you is, correct. is life-changing. A black guy on the radio, that was like huge. He sounded like us. Yeah. You know, where you going, man? Where you come back here, buddy? You know? <laughs> <laughs> you know, in Louisiana, yeah. they ask you a question and they answer it for you. You know, hey, yeah. you are, where you going, huh? Are you coming back here? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and to finally hear it on the radio, that was the first time that it wasn't, that you didn't feel like your life maybe was predetermined for you. That's right. Because before Okie all we had was Mini Pearl. Hank Williams and... Uh, and you can't relate to that shit. No, no, Roy Rogers. <laughs> but yodeling and... You yeah. know, that was our radio yeah. for most of the day. And this guy came on and he said, Lord, it's Claudia. <laughs> <laughs> Eat your mother's homemade pies and drink Maxwell House coffee. That's right, I mean, the coffee commercial. That's right. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> it, was their first, it was their first introduction to instant coffee. His only commercial was Maxwell House Coffee. And I heard, I said, oh, wow, Lord and Miss Claudia. Lord and Miss Claudia. And it was like during the week. So the only time that we would associate anybody talking about the Lord, as we thought about it, Sunday. was on Sundays. Right. Yes. And he talking through the week. So he, this cannot be the Lord Jesus that we talk about. Right. <laughs> this is one day for that. It's, yes, yeah. this is the wrong day of the yeah. week. Yeah. <laughs> We only hear this on Sundays because Sundays was the big black radio day. They played nothing but gospel music. So I started thinking about that Okie Dokie Smith and uh, Lord and Miss Claudia eat your mother's homemade pies and drink Maxwell House coffee. And that Lord and Miss Claudia kind of stuck in my mind. Well, me trying to learn how to play. It's probably unlike anything you'd ever heard before. Just, never, just never. Just the words. Just yeah. the words together, I mean, these, the sound of them. Absolutely. Yeah. I'd never heard like... So, and me trying to learn how to play like Professor Longhair, uh-huh. you know, yep. that eight bar blue thing. I said, oh, Lordy, 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 Miss Claudia. You know, and he stopped making up a melody to yeah. it. Well, the rest of it, you know. Uh... I know the rest of it. <laughs> <laughs> when you started stringing together a couple lyrics and you're sweeping in the shop and Dave Bartholomew hears you, tell me what happened then. Well, what happened? It was an afternoon that... I was in the shop to help my mother, but I was decided I would go to the piano and, and you know and work on this little thing I've been trying to do, put the put the words together with the music I knew how to play. Were you? I'm sorry to interrupt you. Were you self-taught? Yeah, you were self-taught. So yeah. you were just listening to the radio and playing oh, back oh, yeah. what you heard. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Everybody, I mean, at that yeah. time, nobody yeah. read music. Yeah, back then. Yeah. I, don't <laughs> <laughs> I don't think a lot of them read music now, yeah, Lloyd. Right. <laughs> And I broke up with my little girlfriend, Nellie Dukes. You know, she was my little first girlfriend. And she... <laughs> Just the names are amazing. Yeah. They're very evocative. You know? Yeah, right. <laughs> she thought that I was going with another little girl called Elsie Lewis. You know, and she had decided that we was no longer going to be boyfriend-girlfriend. Well, it was it could not be further from the truth because Elsie Lewis and I had grew up together. She was my... We were friends, but not boyfriend-girlfriend. Sure. Like Nellie and I was. So I said, I was really thinking about Nellie. 
when I was trying, Lordy, Lordy, Lordy. Was, I mean, that was really down trying to put it together. And Dave came in the shop for a sandwich. Now, I had never met him. I knew who he was. You had seen him play a bunch. Yeah. Yeah. But I had never met him. I just happened to turn around and saw this customer. So if a customer came in the shop, I would stop playing. Because I didn't want to run him out, you know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so he said, what is that you're playing? I said, a little thing, Lord of Miss Claudia from Okie Dokie. He said, play that again for me. And then it hit me. Ah, that's Dave Bartholomew. So, man, I really got nervous. And <laughs> I couldn't play anyway. So I'm playing all. Now you're shaking. Oh, man, it was terrible. So he said, you know what? I, he said, I really like that. Lord of Miss Claudia. He said, there's a guy coming here from California. His name is Art Root. He is trying to record artists, young black artists, younger than Fats Domino. Because a year and a half earlier, Fats Domino had the biggest record in the state. But Fats knew how to play piano, and I didn't. Yeah. You know? So that was the difference. So um, he said, play that again for me. And I did. He said, you know what? When this guy gets here, I want you to play that for him. And let's see how he likes that. You know, we'll make a record with you. Make a record with me? Now, it clicks. That's what I'm hearing on my mother jukebox. Records. That was the magic word in my mind. Well, I didn't think, oh, okay. So he got his sandwich. I mean, you must have been like Willy Wonka getting the golden ticket, running through town, just completely <laughs> ecstatic to hear something like that. But you know what? It didn't, because I never thought it was going to happen. I never, I just said, oh, okay, I just Nothing. This it was too. It was still too distant. Yeah, there's no way. Yeah, there was it, no way I could connect that. But the good thing, I had met Dave Bartholomew. Yeah, that was the good thing. You know? <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> and that's as far as I let it go in my head. Three weeks or four weeks later, Dave called my house because I gave him the, my mother's number. He said, "This guy's in town, and he wants to. He wants to meet you." What'd your mother think of that? Well, I didn't tell her. <laughs> <laughs> Probably smart, right? <laughs> yeah, I, I, I didn't tell her because, you know, you, you really had to be responsible to your parents right. then. I mean, you couldn't just do what you wanted to do without them knowing because it was not against the law to whack you upside the head. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so I went down to meet him, and uh, he told me he liked it. He did, you, said, did, you really, finish, did you finish the tune? No, what I did was I went down and I played it for them. And I kept putting the same words in. I didn't know you had to, you know, have a story and all that stuff. I just was So you saying, had one verse. Yeah, and I sang it over and over. <laughs> and then I might throw another word. <laughs> so Dave said, you got to have a beginning, a middle, and an ending, you know. And I never wrote a song. I don't know nothing about it. I was feeling what I felt for Nelly is what I was trying to put in in words. But you did I mean you clearly tapped into something. Yeah. You were capturing an emotion. Absolutely. That's exactly And it was correct. just as raw as it could be. I mean raw. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but these guys, but Dave <clears throat> and and who was it that came to the town? Art Brute. And Art so Dave and Art wanted to help you to realize the potential of the song. That's right. Okay. That's right. So he said Art Root said, I'm going I'll be going out of town. I'm back in three weeks and we're gonna record you. I said, whoa. Now, that still didn't hit to me, you know, like, yeah. Here was a white man with a beautiful, his wife, Lee, was just, I'd never been that close to a white woman. 
gorgeous, gorgeous girl. And what really got me going was the way she smelled. I'd never smelled. Whoa, what is that? <laughs> <laughs> she must have been just fully overwhelmed by the whole thing. Oh. Just, I mean, step out of your life into this thing. It was a whole It's a whole world. different world. Yeah. whole different world. Yeah, it was. It was. It so was. at that time, did you start to now think, okay, there's... A wealthy-looking white man and a beautiful wife. I got Dave Bartholomew, and these people telling me I'm going to make a record. What were you thinking? I, I got to finish the lyrics, and this is really going to happen. Or were you still a little hesitant about it? I was still hesitant. Yeah. I couldn't believe. You know, I had never ever been in this kind of company, and the only white man I'd ever been close to was somebody I called Mister. Right. It was a guy who said, "Let's call me Art." You know, call me Art, and he was dressed. Different from anybody in Kenna. You know, he was did you from call Hollywood. Him, did you call him Mark? I called him Mark. I, I called him Mr. Brute. He reminded me three or four times. Listen, just call me Art. This is Lee. Yeah. So uh, wow. he said, we're leaving and we'll be back in... I'm going to turn that <laughs> off. <laughs> <laughs> I'll bring it to you. <laughs> uh, so, so they said they were going to leave town for a couple of weeks yeah. and record you when they came back. When they came back. So what'd you do? So I didn't... Again, it didn't hit me. I, I didn't think about it, you know, at all. I just knew that I'd played this song for this white man and this white woman and for Dave. You know, I didn't think about them wasting their time or sure. nothing like that. Yeah. You know, so three weeks later, three and a half weeks later, I got this. My mother said, there's a guy on the phone. His name is Dave Bartholomew. He want to talk to you. So I went and got to the phone and he said, can you get downtown right away? Because we live seven miles from downtown. So I said, yes, I could get down. He said, get down here as fast as you can get down here. We want to record you. So then it began to seep in to me, you know. Were you ready? <laughs> no, no. I had no idea. Yeah. I had no idea what record meant. I didn't know right. what you go through to do that. Sure. So I didn't have any money, you know, to get downtown. And bus ticket, I think, was 7 Seven cents, something like that. You know, to go to seven miles to the streetcar uh -huh. to get down to North Rampart where he was. But I knew the driver from my ice route. He knew I didn't have any money. I said, I ain't got no money. You know, she let me ride. And he <laughs> got me a, a transfer to get on the tr streetcar to get to where Dave was. So I got to J&M Music. It was a little storefront that sold records in the front. And it had one little studio in the back. You know, that. <laughs> yep. that's what it was. Yep. And I didn't think colored could go in this store because there was no colored folks in that part of town. The French Quarters, Bourbon Street was a block away, and blacks just didn't go in that area. But here was a guy, a white guy, Cosmos, you know, that allowed blacks to come in this store. Not just come in there, he let them go in the back and record. He had one mono, little mono machine. It had a little space cut through like one of your little windows right there. And that was the control room. And in there was Earl Palmer, C.J. McClellan. I'd seen these guys play with Dave. These was the best musicians in town. And then about two minutes, Fats Domino walk in. Now, whoa, what's going on here? And so Dave is explaining it to them how the song goes. So he asked me, he said, what key is it in? <laughs> <laughs> I'm just laughing. I know it's going to happen. Oh, man, that oh, was yeah. like asking me to fly to Concord. Yeah, I didn't know. No, what key? 
So he said, and Fats Namino is over on the piano, he's playing. He never stopped playing piano. Never. Just play. He said, Fats, stop playing. Go over and sing it. Just go over and sing it to Fats like you did for me. So I went over and, oh, Lordy, 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 Miss Carter. And Fats was playing. He says, A flat. <laughs> I don't know what they're talking about. He said, Fats, play an introduction on the piano. One of the greatest introductions ever. He played, just played it, just out of the blue. Out of nowhere. And he said, play it again, Fats. He said, when you get there, you sing. He said, go over to the microphone. Now, I don't know what he's talking about. Go over to the microphone. So you literally don't know, the, I mean, you don't know these word, the word record, A flat, None. microphone. These are just foreign terms. It's foreign, foreign, It's a different foreign. language. Absolutely. So there was a little curtain, and there was this big thing they called a microphone. <laughs> Were you just looking around yeah, so and wondering now, what the hell to do? Yeah, I'm singing to the curtain. I'm hearing the music, and I'm singing to the curtain. He said, now sing, sing it three times. The three times is verses. Make sure all of them are different. I said, okay, I do one about my mama, I do one about girl, and I do one about Lord and Miss Carter. You're, you're making it up. Yeah, yeah right there on the spot. I had to think. Were of, you writing? You were writing nothing. 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 And you remembered the verses that you made up in yeah. your head well enough to record them? Yeah, because I, knew, I was going to tell my mama. I knew how yeah. what the end should be. And, girl, you like to stay out all night? You know, it, it just was all about Nelly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but still, not to have the lyrics and be recording with the guys that are the, the, the most top, influential musicians to your life at that point. There was the top people in the world to me, yeah. And uh, I sung it down once for them, got it, and Dave said, okay, now when you sing the three verses, Fast Domino going to do that thing again with the introduction. And then Herbert Hardister, he's going to take a solo. When he finished, you come back in and sing it two times out. I said, okay, Lordy, Lordy, Miss Claudia, I'm a girl, fine as you can be. And you sure look good to me. And bye-bye. That's why I bye-bye. Bye. That was my last verse. <laughs> down the road I go. Then fat, dong, 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 dang. That was it. Changed the sound of music. Unbelievable. Yeah. That it just happened. Two takes. No playback. I never heard myself play back. Never. I think the amazing thing about, I mean, there's a lot of amazing things there. Is that it happened so naturally. There was nothing forced about it. And you could pick up on the cues and understand well enough what to do. But making up the lyrics, being intimidated by playing with these guys, and still coming out with two takes and what eventually became a hit record, <laughs> I, I still it doesn't process in my brain. It doesn't make sense. Well. Did it make sense to you? No, no. I, I just said, okay, fine. Great. They told me what I had to have. You had to have three and then you do three. Yeah. And I just picked out things. You know, my mother, I picked out the night, goodbye, and how fine she was. And that, that was it. I mean, it's really, it's really capturing lightning in a bottle with the right people <laughs> at the right time and you ready to sing those lyrics. But it's, I mean, it's also a testament to art, you know, being able to give you just what you needed to get it done. Oh, yeah. With, with no other expectations. Just sing this three times. That's all you got to do. And breaking it down into a kind of compartmentalized, this is all you got to do. Just do this. That's right. Because if it had right. been more than that, it probably wouldn't have made sense. It would not have made sense. Yeah. That's right. And the other side, I thought I was done. 
And Art and his wife came out and said, oh, we love that. That is so good. The young kids are going to buy it. You know, young kids didn't buy records. They just, the war was over and it just was beginning to come out. So they said, now you need a B-side. Records got two sides. Oh, wow. I There's no such thing as a B-side. I have a thought. Right, right. I got one song. <laughs> right. What the hell are you talking about? <laughs> Put a little heads up. <laughs> yeah, right. What is, what is a B-side? So you got to have two sides. Now, Fats Domino never quit playing. He always played the piano. Never quit. Boom. He was playing a boogie woogie. So I wanted to go to the Army. There was another way out of Kenner is volunteering for the Army. So I had four brothers in the military, and a fifth brother was in the Coast Guards. At that time, they were separated. The law said that only four boys of four men from every family could only be taken. Hmm. I knew I couldn't go into service because it's, you know, we're at the end of the quarter. So I wanted to get a draft notice because, you know, there was a draft at that time. So when Fats Domino was playing that boogie-woogie on the piano, I just said, well, night before last, the mailman knocked at my door. They said, do you have a B-side? And I was thinking, I'm listening to Fats. I said, yes, mailman blues. (laughs) (laughs) Unbelievable. Made up every word. Because I made up exactly what I expected. The mailman that knocked at the door, my draft notice, that's what all about. And then I start, the next verse was, well, all day long, it's one, two, three, and four. I'm so down, down, I ain't gonna see my baby no more. And then, uh, solo, you know? Yeah. And then, no great big, because they say out in army camp, there was nothing there. I said, no great big cities, just little old raggedy towns. How old were you when you were in the studio? At that time, I was 17 and a half. It's crazy. I just wanted to get out of there. You know, now I realize where I'm at, Dave and... I had met these white people, and I'm sitting by Miss Lee, and I—I I mean, this was, this was something. Nobody believed this because it all was illegal. It was against yeah. the law. So Art was really putting himself on the line to be doing what he was doing. Yeah, but he didn't care about that. Yeah. you know what I mean. Yeah. So uh, I want to get out of there because now I'm getting—I'm feeling feel like I'm being just too crowded with all of this affection and all this stuff. People being nice to me, you know what I mean. And so when I got ready to go, I was asked Dave, was I done? I said, am I finished? She said, yeah, you finished. You finished. You know, good job, good job, good job. As I get ready to go out the door, Art said, wait a minute, Lord, wait a minute. And he goes in his pocket and he gives me a $50 bill. First one I'd ever seen. I said, I don't know, no, sir. He said, no, 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 no. You take this. Man, That I thought my heart was going to jump out of my chest. $50? I was making $26.40 a week as a dishwasher at the airport after school. And, and you just get, got paid for two weeks of work yeah. in <laughs> in an hour. <laughs> I thought that was all the end of it. You know what I mean? I said, oh, man, give me $50. I didn't even know how to get it cash. Did you, you feel know? like, I mean, I feel like if you get out on the street, you've got to be looking around like oh, absolutely. just nervous as hell, like someone's going to know <laughs> that I have this money and then yeah. they think that I stole it. I, I don't want to have this bill. John, I, just, <laughs> I was a nervous wreck, you know? <laughs> <laughs> then I had to get back on the streetcar and back on the bus and go to Kenner. You know, I kept my hand in my pocket holding the whole it. time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Make sure it's there. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and there was one guy in Kenner that I knew he had a clothing store and his name was Mr. Dave. So I went, I had to first try and figure out whether or not it was real. So I gave it to Mr. Dave and he asked, where'd you get all this money, boy? 
I said, well, I just made a recording. And they gave me $50. He did, uh, what is the recording? You know, I, yeah. he'd have no idea. You know, and I bought, I bought something. I bought a shirt there or something. And he changed it for me. And man, I was happy. It was real money. I got money I understood. A 10 and a 20. Right. <laughs> More manageable denominations. Yeah. <laughs> I can work with this. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> Big money. Yeah. You know what I mean? And, you know, because during that time, my father was probably making 65 cents an hour, which was big money, you know, for guys with families as large as my father's, you know what I mean? And so I was making $26.40 a week, which was big money. You know, I said, oh, something's going on. I just couldn't figure it out. But I didn't get overwhelmed by it. I just said, okay, fine. Sure. Yeah. All right. So what, what, you heard Lottie Miss Claudia on the radio. Was that right? Yeah. But that's how you knew that it got made and it was out there? Because you didn't hear anything else from Dave about this, no, right? No, I never heard from Dave. I never heard a playback. I didn't even know what I sound like. We was coming home like 4 o'clock in the evening. And Okie Dokie just said, look, I'm going to play it one more time. This is my 10th time today. This is a smash. And he played Lord and Miss Claudia. He said, by Lloyd Price, little boy from Kenner, Louisiana. That's when I knew he was talking about me. Because you'd actually never heard the recording. I'd never heard the recording, no. Did you freak out? I, <laughs> I, I, what freaked me out was hearing my name on the radio. Was you, And your dad was driving. No, my brother. Your brother was driving? Yeah. Oh, your dad wasn't in the car? No. It was just you and your brother? Yeah. Okay. And I said, oh my God, this is something. Geraldine going to hear it. Margie going to hear my name on the radio. This is huge. (laughs) (laughs) You're thinking about the girls. Yeah, right. (laughs) All these were little girls I would be trying to talk to. Yeah. You know. And man, it just grew and grew and grew and grew, Gerald. I mean, just over and over and over. So did Dave call you? How did you? Well, at the end of 30 days, I did get a call from our group and from Dave. They said, don't sign nothing with nobody. Don't sign nothing. We want to do a record contract with you. Now, that was the first time I'd ever heard contract. But now I got to stay with Dave because I don't know what, you know. Right. He's the only guy you know. He's the the only guy guy I know. Yeah. Yeah. And then I get a call from the biggest club in New Orleans, black club at that time, Frank Pinier's Dewdrop. I always dreamt about going in there because it was the club. It was the club. But, you know, it was for big people. Right. Yeah. Right. So I get a call from Frank, and he said, I want to come out and talk to you. So he came out to my mother's house. He said, listen, I want you to work my club for me. Now, I'm hearing the record now just over and over and over. I'm hearing Lord and Miss Clark. And now the kids, the little white kids from across the street. Why are they now knowing who I am? Because it's now being played on the biggest white stations. It's no longer race music. It was crossing he, over. Yeah. Here's a little kid from Kenner, Louisiana on WDSAU, the biggest station in New Orleans. See, so must have been the biggest thing in town. I'm, I'm still not getting it. You know, I'm still just me. I'm just the same as I am now. You know, and I've been on the charts 30 times. And I still don't get it. It just, this is what I do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you had to deal with the contracts and that's kind of when things started to get going for you Lottie Miss Claudia was a hit was it a hit nationally did you know where it was getting played I did no. art tell you anything about that no okay no but so what, at the time it was still this is just a big deal now and we want to keep moving forward with you that's right how I knew 
what was going on when Frank asked me to come and work his nightclub for two weeks. Two weeks? You want me to sit? But you can't bring that little braggity band. I'm going to give you my band. Come down and rehearse these songs with my band. So I had to do one of Big Joe Turner's songs, <laughs> you know, to make up a half hour. Yeah. I had to do a half hour. I'd never done nothing like that. At, at Morgan's, I just did what I'd... Yeah. I played all night. Yeah. But over and over the same, same songs. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so he said, no, you got to have a show. You got to have a show. He said, I'm going to give you $50 a night. $50 a night? Whoa. I couldn't believe it. That was huge. I was I hiding the money. I could. My mother, I just told her I was, you know, I had a job working that night. But I was going to that club. I couldn't let them know I was working at the club. Sure, they still didn't know? No. But she must but they hear, the, she they know the record. Radio. They yeah. hear, yeah. they seen these kids coming over. And talk. Was she mad at you for going to do the recording? No, they, they just they didn't get it. Yeah. They, they they just couldn't understand what was. Nobody couldn't understand. Of course, here Lloyd Price, you no know frame of reference. No, there was no reference. Here they're hearing me on the radio like they're hearing Louis Jordan and Cab Calloway and Duke Ellington and Lloyd Price. And now one of my brothers, he was a master sergeant in the service. He got to go to Korea. He's got a big, brand new Roadmaster Buick. He gave it to me. He said, all you got to do is pay the notes on it. It's yours. $49 a month. I'm getting $50 <laughs> so a month. So now day. you got, you have <clears throat> this incredible job. You're playing music at night. You're driving around this hot car. You got your new shirt. I mean, it's hot. You feel like the shit. <laughs> I'm the big, I'm bigger than the mayor. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I so got it has the, to start to register. It now beginning, yeah, beginning to come bit, together. Yeah, I'm bigger than the governor. You know what I mean? All these little girls that I've been trying to get. Lord, let me ride. Give me a ride. And I got pockets full of money. You know what I mean? This is crazy. It's You're a, along for the ride at this point. I'm yeah, going. Yeah, I'm going. You're just going. Now, Frank Pena calls me back. He said, listen, I want you to now work 30 nights. I'm getting calls from everywhere. People think I'm your manager. I want to manage you. Here's a new word. Right. Manager. I said, what is going on? He said, but Claudia, now he's calling me Claudia. <laughs> I'm going to give you $100 a night. And I'm going to pay the band. I'm going to pay all that. You know, these people call money, blah, blah. They cost money, but I'm going to pay for it. I said, I don't know what's going on. He gave me $100 a night for 30 nights. Now I'm rich. Now you're loaded. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a thousand near. <laughs> I'm, I'm bigger than Mr. Morgan. He's the All biggest right. man in town. He got the sawmill. Unbelievable. Unfreaking believable. The first time when Frank Panier said, listen, I want you to go to Pensacola, Florida, Mobile, Alabama, Birmingham, you know, the whole southern coast, the yep. Delta. And Pensacola, there was a Navy barrack there, and I played for the sailors. You couldn't move. The promoter said, I got 700 or 800 people in here. And I got that many want to see you again. Wow. Here's what woke me up. Now I'm like two months. Lord of Miss Claudia is burning up the world. I don't know this. He said, if you work a second show for me tonight, I will give you another $750. I said, $750? i am getting $100 a night. You give me what? (laughs) (laughs) He said, I'll give you $750 more. I'll give it to you right now. I took it. And so Frank's son was on the road with me. And I told him what had happened. We had to do another show. He said, well, you got to give me the money. I said, no, he gave it to me. 
That's where things started getting off balance. Yep. I said, I got to do another show for the man. And he was in charge of everything, the mm -hmm. band, the mm -hmm. money, the whole bit. So I insist that we do another show. Now, I'm assuming he had called his father back in New Orleans and told him what had happened. So we finished our job. We had to do Mobile and Birmingham. Now I know what they're doing. So I'm wondering how he's giving me 100 when I'm supposed to be getting 750 Yeah. Now, I do know about money because I've been doing this, even though there was no financial background in my in my house, well, there was nothing but white banks. Right. You know, I knew, but you know enough math at this point to know you're getting taken advantage of. I knew of. enough. Yes. Yes. So then Frank decided to level. He said, man, you the hottest thing in the... You hotter than a piece of glass in a desert. He said, mean that people want you everywhere. And then I'm called away. Don Roby, at that time, had the biggest black entertainment complex in America. Peacock and Duke Records. He was the only black guy in the country had a record company. Now I'm finding this out every day. I'm finding new things out. Yeah. He calls my parents and said he want to be my booking agent. He flies down from Houston, Texas. He said, man, everybody in Houston want to see you. I said, really? He said, I done booked the city auditorium. I want you to come over there and work for me. So I go over to Houston for Don Roby. Now here's the biggest thing. Houston is 350 miles from New Orleans. The airport is two blocks from my house. I'm thinking that I can get, I could get there in a couple hours. I'm there. Don Roby calls me about maybe three o'clock, and I'm still at my house. <laughs> he said, "Man, you ain't gonna get here in time. I done sold four thousand tickets. I only got five hundred people in my town." <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> he said, "Go, go to the airport, and you gotta fly over here now." I'd never been on it. I worked there. I've been. I didn't sit in the captain's cockpit for, you know, cleaning yeah, the airplane. Yeah. But I know all about the airplane, but I've never been up in one. <laughs> so my mother works for the mayor. My mother calls the mayor. The mayor asked me, me and my band, to meet him at the airport. We meet him at 430, something like that. We never bought a ticket. We never bought anything. Me and my band just go out and get on the airplane. The mayor must have took care of it. Whatever it was, we didn't right. take care of it. And he made it to the show. We made it to the show. Don Robin met us with a bus. We had nothing. We were just a little kind of band. 4,000 people, he said, was there. 40-some hundred, whoever was there. Mix. Mexicans. We, I just got up and do what I did at this club. Over and over and over. And they loved it. Wow. And Don Robin told me the next day, you know, he said, listen, let me tell you something. Don't you ever do that kind of shit. He said, if you're going to be in show business, People love you. Say, but if you play that shit you played last night, they're never going to come back and hear you again. He says, you got to get a band. You got to get something. But he wasn't happy with your band? No, because the people was happy. Yeah. They, we just a bunch of young guys jumping off the stage. We invent all that stuff you see, James Brown and yeah. Jim Jackson. We invented all that. <laughs> you know, I take my shirt off and, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I did not picture that from you, Lord. We were the thing. Oh, yeah. You all were crowd stuff. surfing and tearing your oh, shirt yeah. off? I could that? dance. You know, I was dancing, and I did more dancing. I'd run out in the crowd. They'd tear my shirt off. I loved uh. it, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Jared, I was like the, the Beatles, Michael Jackson, James Brown, Wilson Pickett, you name them. I was all of those in one. Monday through Sunday. As many people could get in the, wherever they had us, at Armors, whatever, whatever the big building was in town is where they had us. And you could not get in. 
I did that for like maybe 14, 15 months, and then I get a draft notice. Why am I getting a draft notice now? All your brothers had already been drafted. Yeah, and it's illegal. So now I hired this lawyer, Charles Levy, in New Orleans. You know, he had never had a black client before. And he tells me, I'm here, new words, retainer. And oh, yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> That's the first word the lawyers learn. <laughs> yeah, right. So he wanted to know, who am I? Who are you? I said, well, I'm... I make records, you know what I mean? But now, 14, by, 15 months, you made, I got five you made records a hell of a lot of money by now. Oh, yeah. They claim that I had made, made more money than the president because the president only made 35000 a year back uh, then. Do you have a bank? No, what bank? There was what no the black hell bank. What did you do with all the money? Kept it in the car, in the trunk. <laughs> 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 now, the first banking... I think it was in 19, uh, just before I went to the Army, 1953. I had to get rid of this money. So they just had opened a bank in Kenner, and we call it the White Bank. So I didn't even think blacks would go in there. Yeah. Now they know who I am in Kenner. Everybody's speaking to me. I go in the White Bank, and I open this account. Wow. You were drafted, but you were October. drafted illegally. Yes. But you were drafted anyway. Yes. Did you feel like that was because you were getting too big for your well, britches? What, what? I was not that sophisticated. You know, I just knew, I knew I was not supposed to go in. So my lawyer, Charles Levy, he spoke to me about a deferment. I was the sole supporter of my family. Well, actually, at that time I was. My father's hip was broke. He had broken his hip. And now they begin to live pretty good because I'm living pretty good. You know what I mean? Yeah. He said, let me see, going to get your deferment. He did. He got me a 30-day deferment. So uh, he said, okay, when we go back, we'll try to get 90 days for you. And eventually, you know, we'll try to keep you out. Well, when the 30 days was up, of course, I worked those 30 days. I went back down to my draft board in Metairie, Louisiana. The lady came out. She said, listen, the chairman of the Armed Service Committee said, you have to go in the service. You have to go. So Charles Levy was questioning her. Said, "Why? Why you specifically? Yeah, why?" He said, "No, he's got to go." I found out who that was. His name was Richard Russell. He was uh, like the grand, what they call him, grand coxman or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> no. Yeah, he was the grand wizard there in Georgia. But he was LBJ's boy. He led the Senate, and you know, I later found all these things out as years went by. Yeah. But the whole problem was of my music integrating the South. That's what it was. In. Not just the and they South. Didn't, they didn't want to have that. But, Jared, it was not just Louisiana. As I went through states, same problems I had. There was not as deep, but it was all the same thing. You was a second-class citizen in this country as a black man. But you were disrupting that. Yes. And I was breaking that barrel down. Yes. And white people and black people will be at the concerts together, and everybody's starting to see this spread across the country, and the government tries to put a stop That's to it. That's exactly correct. But as they stopped me when I got drafted, here come Fats Domino, because he didn't play it on my first five records. Here come Frankie Ford. Here come... It was too late. Yeah, Little Richard. So they could get rid of you for a little while. That's right. And hope you don't come back, but, the, but it's too late. It was in the DNA of their kids. Did you have a sense of... How big Lottie Miss Claudie was when you were away? Well, what happened was when I got drafted, we went overseas on a ship from Seattle to Tokyo. One morning, maybe five days out on the ship, I heard my name, Lloyd Price, report to this office. 
Now, I'm on a troop ship. Who knows? No one gets singled out. No. <laughs> so I go I go to to this office and here was this young white lieutenant, a commander, whatever you call him. He said, Lloyd Price. I said, Yes, sir. Now I'm he said at ease, you know. He said, Listen, I know who you are, and a lot of people on the ship know who you are. We have over two thousand dependents on their way to Tokyo. And they probably know who you are. So we got another eight or nine days on this ship. I would like for you to put a show together to entertain the troops and these people. I said, what? See, we yeah, we know who you are. <laughs> so he said, listen, I'm going to get on the bitch box, is what he said, and see if there's any musicians on this ship. And I'm sure there are. You audition them, see if they know who you are and know your music. So he did that. He called an audition. Man, I bet you 40 or 50 guys showed up, put together a seven-piece band. Wow. On the ship. Black and white kids who had heard and knew about this music. So we did a show, and all of, most, I would imagine, most of the dependents knew Lloyd Pride. I mean, this was amazing. It was almost like being at Morgan's. Wow. Everybody knew you. That's what started to, to oh, wow. That's when it clicked. Yeah. Yeah. And when I got to Tokyo... At Camp Drake, where all the processing was done, and they got music playing all the time. First thing I heard was Lord of Miss Clark. <laughs> <laughs> it's incredible. It spread all the way. Amazing. I'm in Tokyo. Incredible. Incredible. Now, I was shipped 800 miles south to Korea, and I was first in the artillery company. Mm-hmm. They call them 255 Projos. Big gun. Uh-huh. Shoot 37 miles. So my first assignment. <laughs> Are you looking around like, what the hell am I doing here? Absolutely. How did I end up I'm here? a real stranger here. Yeah. So they make me a gunner. So Logan, my, the first guy I worked for in West Virginia, black guy, he knew that I was going to the service because this is the last guy I told. He said, well, my brother is in Korea. He's a first lieutenant. It ain't that many over there. So... Just maybe you might run into it. So I'm in this company, you know, I'm first mistake I made. I mean, I probably destroyed a rice field. I set off the wrong numbers. Oh. You know, because they throw those numbers. Ninety channels, uh, I know that. Uh. <laughs> I'm trying to... <laughs> I don't know nothing about this. I'm trying to... Even though I, you know, I, I had trained on a smaller gun. I got took off of guns and they put me in the honor guard. Honor guards will go across the DMZ to bring back, if they're dead soldiers or prisoners mm-hmm. or whatever, we go across and get them and bring them back. You know, I'm there now 30 days almost. I get an assignment to be in line, you know, in, in the ranks so we could be counted that morning at 7 o'clock. I oversleep. So, oh man, I wake up and everybody's gone. Long story short, there's a black lieutenant. You know, I said, oh, my God, I, I know this is the end because this guy going to be harder on me than anybody else. Now, I'm standing at attention, and I catch his name tag. It says, Logan, this cannot be true. You know, and I'm in my head. So as he just cursed, you have this damn weapon, blah, blah, blah. I said, sir, are you Logan? <laughs> are you Ted Logan? He said, are you Lloyd Price? I said, yeah. And he saw my name tag. <laughs> You're saved. You got saved. Get out of the He yeah. pulled me out of the rank, told me to go sit over there, and he went on down the line, and then he came back, took me to the office's mess, had lunch. He said, listen, get out of there. I'm going to get you out of that line company right now. 
He drove me, it was 18 miles from where we were to Seoul, drove me to the Seoul Army Hospital and checked me in. Said something was wrong with me. He checked me in the hospital. Oh my God. He said, tell him you don't feel right in your chest. So I stayed in there 10 days and Marvin Snare, the guy who had wrote a lot about me in a Rhythm and Blues magazine, it was a new magazine, he was in special service. He found out I was down there in the hospital. He came down there to see me, and he got me in the special service. Only you could go across the world <laughs> and get taken care of like that. <laughs> and have a connect, know somebody and have a connection and, and find your way out of that. It's amazing. It's incredible. It was all amazing. Mr. Personality. It was, a, of course. I you, but you know what? I feel the same way now as I did then. And you notice I've done a lot of things in my life. Yeah. But when I got in special service... remained very humble about all of it. Yes. And then in the headquarters company, where I was 7th Division Headquarters Company, everybody there was wondering, who, who is this guy? Because every day, there'd be 10 to 15 soldiers showing up and want to meet me. And I started giving autographs until the head of the company called me in his office, set me down. Who are you? Who, what do you do? And I told him what I said. I make records. What records? I ain't never heard of you. And anyway, the division commander told him that I should be assigned to entertain the troops. They did the same thing there as they did on the ship. Had a whole day of me just auditioning musicians and entertainers. And then I had a whole little division of my own of entertainers. Incredible. Yeah. Mm -hmm. All right. So you put this band together. You do your time. You get out. You come back. And not long after that, you recorded Staggerly, although it started as a B-side, from what I recall. That's right. And and you got convinced to put it on the A-side, and then it sold three and a half million records and was huge and, and tore up the charts. I, I have a couple notes in front of me, just a few, a few little things here. that w- When you got back, you, well, you had two record labels. You developed affordable housing in New York. You had a jazz club. You bought Birdland and changed, turned that into the turntable, into your jazz club. Uh, you were the one who connected Don King to Muhammad Ali. How did you do that? Well, they knew me. They knew me. Muhammad, you know, he was a real fan of mine. When I went to Louisville, there was no hotels. and We lived in guest houses. There was a nice guest house not far from where Ali lived. And there also was a place called Rivers, where I would go in the afternoon. It was like a restaurant. Ali would come and he would see my car. I always had these big Cadillacs, you know, uh-huh. convertibles. And he'd come by and he'd, man, what do you do? How do you, I mean, staggerly, staggerly. And he would sing it and all that stuff. So I knew Ali. I had let him drove my car. I introduced <laughs> him to a lot of birds because I was a hero, you know. Yeah, that, yeah. He was I'm, looking up to you. That's right. That's right. Finally, I met Don King. I had met Don like in 57 or And he wasn't a promoter back then. No, no. He was a number man in Cleveland. Who introduced me to him was the guy he should turn his numbers into. His name was Scatterbrains. <laughs> of course it was. Yeah, right. Yeah, of course it was. <laughs> and if you saw Shaft, that film was was about this guy, Scatterbrains. Okay. And uh, he introduced me to Don in 57 or 58. So I really liked Don. He had a little club called a Corner Tavern in Cleveland that he used to always ask me to come and play once I met. I could I always had a big band. You couldn't get my band nowhere near that the joint. Right. So he said, if I build a bigger nightclub, would you come and play for me? I said I would. 
He sure did. He built a Copacabana in the ghetto wow. on 78th and Cedar Street. They wore spats, had a big canopy outside, people parking their cars, Chateau Brouillard and all that. Wow. I mean, he really did it. Yeah. So he really, really became a good friend of mine. Okay. So I was in Cleveland at his house, and I remembered I had to call Ali. Ali was in New York. And as I was talking to Ali, it was also Don King's daughter, Debbie. It was her fifth birthday. So I'm talking to Ali, and I said, Say champ. He wasn't no champ yet. Yeah. Sing happy birthday to Don King. So he said, who the hell is Don King? I said, he's a friend of mine out in Cleveland, got a nightclub. I'm out here, I'm at his house. Sing happy birthday to his little daughter. Today's his birth, her birthday. So Don said, man, who is that? I said, this, that's, this is Cassius Clay. He was Cassius Clay at that right. time. Man, let me say hello to Cassius. And that's how it all starts coming. Unbelievable. <laughs> <laughs> Incredible. Yeah. Incredible. You ended up being part of uh, the thrill in Manila and then the next year, Rumble in the Jungle. Well, the Rumble in the Jungle was first. 74. 74 yeah. And then 75. With the thriller. Was the thriller. Right, yeah. I was getting confused. <laughs> what happened was, I knew a lot about Africa because the ambassador from Ghana had had dinner at my house and... Uh, when I had the club in New York, a lot of the students from Africa would wind up on Broadway. I had the only black club on Broadway, <clears throat> which was black and white. So I knew a lot of the boys over there. But to get to where we got in the Belgium Congo was a sure accident. Remember Joe Frazier and Ali at Fort in the Gardens mm-hmm. in 69. Jack and- Kent Cook. He had given them $2.5 million apiece. Biggest sports event ever in the history of sports. Ali lost that fight in the garden, right? He sure did in yeah. the 15th round. Yeah. But how the fight to Rumble and Jungle came about, Don King had offered $5 million apiece. Where did we get that number from? Simple. Double with Jack Kent Cook and Frank Oka. <laughs> and there was no money. We didn't have no money. There's some balls on Don King at that time. Exactly. But we knew if we got a contract signed, that money should come easy. Yeah. And you knew both the guys, so you were right in the middle. You knew all the guys. That's right, I knew them. So you were connecting the whole thing. That's right. (laughs) So actually, the rumble in the jungle, the contract, I signed the contract with the government because we had a festival, a show as well. Our intent was to take more black people back to Africa with that event that had been back over there in 400 years. I had booked all the Fania Latin All-Stars. We book Aretha, Marvin Gaye, Stevie, James Brown, Johnny Nash, Etta James, B.B. King, Bill Withers, all booked to go to this festival. We wound up with James Brown and Etta James. Marvin Gaye pulled out. Stevie pulled out. The reason why most of them pulled out is because we had black pilots. (laughs) 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 Man, I ain't flying on the airplane. Stevie Wonder, of all people, pulled out because his lawyer, Vogoda, told him we was using black pilots. It was just beginning to fly DC-9s. Wow. So we had two of them. We cleared everybody. Our office cleared all the passports. We gave the visas ourselves. Who was going going with us? Free for all. uh, Yeah, Aretha pulled out. Marvin pulled out. Wow. And we wound up with James Brown being our biggest star, you know, going over there. B.B. King, Jazz Crusaders, Bill Withers. Oh, man, Johnny Nash, other James. Yeah. It was a great festival. Yeah. I used Chipmunk, the guy who did Woodstock. I had 12 camera crews with him over there. I had the Rocket Plant. 
these were the biggest names in show business in terms of technical know-how. Yeah. How did we did the first digital transatlantic ever in the history of the world? We bounced the fight up twelve thousand miles up, twelve thousand miles down, and we was only half a frame off on the screens around the world. So that made that event the biggest event ever. Right. But George Foreman cut his eye, so the fight did not go off on September the twenty fourth as it should have. But the event did, went off September 24th, the festival. Yeah. We had 124,000 people. All the entertainers had signed with me because they had never heard of no Don King. Don King exploded when George Foreman got his eye cut. Here we got an opportunity for six weeks for me to make him a promoter. I went around through all the camps saying Don King was a promoter, which was not the truth. But I saw some talent in Don, plus he was my friend. You know, so I promoted Don as a promoter with Ali, with George, and with everybody who was left there for six weeks. I did nothing but hit Don King, Don King, Don King, Don King. Right. Where were you for those fights? In Zion. No, were you ringside for those fights? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Me and Don, we were sitting right there at the ringside. But I didn't jump up in the ring. I wanted Don to be the man. Because I had, I had won everything you could imagine about winning. I had 11 gold records, 16 altogether hits at that time. Phil Spector and I had won everything you could imagine winning in music business. There was nothing else for me to do. I had the biggest yeah. black club. So I wanted to do something else. I had discussed it with, with Don. We're either going to move in sports or entertainment. And I know all the players. I'm, you know, most of them are my fans. And that's how we began to move. Incredible. Yes. It's unbelievable that you were at the center of all of that. And the most iconic, two most iconic fights that you know anybody learns about. That's right. When you learn about boxing, those are the first things you learn about. That's right. And the thrill in Manila, I uh, did a film of Don King, The Day in Life of a Promoter, because I wanted him to be a the biggest name ever. Well, that certainly I was, worked. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. After those fights, you decided to leave and live in Africa. Was it because you had enjoyed the time that you spent there during these fights? Or no. Or did you go for another reason? It was another reason. In 1978, the soldiers stepped down, giving the government back to the civilians. Well, a lot of the young men who went down the via for senator and president and all that stuff, I knew them. I knew a guy called uh, J.S. Tucker, but he was the John Kennedy of Nigeria. He had been to jail. The British had arrested him for freedom and peace and democracy. So he asked me to come to London to sit down and talk with him. I went to London and they had a plan of how to win the government to campaign like they did in America. Start in the northern part of Nigeria and just work all the way south through all the tribes. Hug and kiss babies. Eat goat meat. <laughs> eat goat meat. Drink goat milk and eat fried bread. With, with different tribes and understand the customs. So I did that with these guys. And sure enough, they ran and won the government. So when a second republic was handed down from the soldiers to the civilians, these were my boys. That's why I went to Nigeria. Got it. I went to Nigeria to, I'm beginning to hear all new stuff. You know, 50 barrels of oil a day, building railroads, building defense highways post offices, automobile parts, a whole different language yeah. of things that I need to learn how to do. Licensing. So I opened up a company called the Palms Organization. At that time, what was big was 
There was no faxes. It was telexes and all that stuff. They all knew how to telex back and forth between Nigeria because there was no phone service. It took 12 hours to get a call through or something like that. But I had a big operation down there because with my guys winning, I knew all the ministers. I knew the president of the state. These were my partners. Yeah. So <laughs> I was right in the middle of all this stuff. Yeah. You know what I mean? So I managed to stay down there a long time and was doing very well, you know, as an entrepreneur in Nigeria. And I, it was working out very well. They gave me, just as somebody who was involved with the government in a little place called uh, Calabar, they gave me 8 million acres. What? To <laughs> <laughs> What? <laughs> I knew it t- would take lifetimes, you know, to cultivate this and, and barter. You right. barter the wood, you barter the lime, whatever was on it. I had 300 indigenous people living in that. But I couldn't do nothing with that. That, I, that just was completely out of my scope, you know. To, There's only so much one person can do yeah, at a time. Yeah, 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 yeah. Took lifetimes. Yeah. But that was the kind of thing I was doing. I had met with Henry Ford the third for I went and asked a stupid question. I wanted exclusive for Ford cars Whoa. for Africa. <laughs> he laughed at me. <laughs> Gotta ask. I mean I asked for rail cars and I mean things that they was assigning me to do as an American to come back here and do, I'd come back. But I got to meet a lot of people and start understanding a lot of things that was difficult to me. Yeah. I start to understand it just through my own common sense. Your capacity to learn these new things and become proficient at them in all these different businesses that have nothing to do with each other is really inspiring because that's what a lot of, you know, what I, that's what I try to do with a lot of my work and with a lot of the guys, you know, we're jumping from one thing to another and trying to educate ourselves about it. We didn't go to school to learn about it, but we try to figure it out. But you would you were able to figure these things out and become proficient at them and make money from them. And we uh, are always inspired by that. Yeah, I, I never felt like there was, I was at the end of the road. It's always there, something else. There was always something else to do. Why, why do you think that was? I don't know. Uh, I still feel like that. You well, know. yeah, and we'll get to you know what you're up to now. But you don't. You just you, there's a drive. You just have this drive. Yeah. After, Do you get bored if you're not busy? I probably would. Yeah. I probably would. But I, you've I, never really not been busy, so you don't really know. Always. Busy. <laughs> <laughs> and it never was so much about the money. It was always the need to do something. Mm-hmm. You're still busy. You're how, how old are you now? I'm 82. You're 82 years old. Yes. You're faster on email than most people I know. <laughs> Up to date on technology. You're still working on projects. You're taking your life story to Broadway. Yes. And you're doing a film? Yes. Tell me about those two projects. Well, I'll tell you about the one that's really developing. That's the play. Okay. It's about Lord and Miss Claudia. As strange as it was to get it recorded with Dave and Fats Domino, that's kind of like what we're going through now. Yeah. But we've, <laughs> we've crossed the high mark. Hopefully we can be up at the end of April, early May. We'll have the first complete reading. We're in the process now of casting, putting a group together. And we have a great production company, Daryl Roth, who is one of the biggest in the city. Uh, Ms. Roth, I think she owns two of the theaters. And why I think it's going to work is because they wouldn't have taken on this project. Right. I mean, they got plays opening up until 2020, 2021. They just don't have time to waste time with something they don't believe in. in. 
So they believe in the play as we do. Jeff Madoff, who is the writer and producer of the play, uh, and myself. We got something to say about the youth movement. Lord and Miss Claude started the youth movement in this country, and that's what the play is about. And through the lens of your life story? Yes. Okay. Of one flag, one nation, one language. That's what the play is about. The youth movement developed that through music. And we strongly believe that's why the president is in the White House. Because of the, the small act of dancing together. That is exactly Which started Absolutely everything. correct. That because is, we all know what dancing together could lead to that's at right. uh, young ages. <laughs> <laughs> and then, there's a paragraph in the book where I talk about that in some Damaki when the a white father saw his daughter dancing with a, with a black guy. He just knew that that was a train wreck. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, the, book, the book really quickly, Some Dumb Honky, and right. it's spelled phonetically. Right. Uh, and when you told me the book title when we were speaking on the phone a while back, I actually didn't know what the hell you were saying to me until I, I wrote it down and then I spelled it out and, and found it. And it's literally Some Dumb Honky. Um, and I, I know we talked about this earlier. Why did you name your book Some Dumb Honky? Because, f- first of all, I went to get attention. Well, that you it know. does. <laughs> And I wanted I wanted it to to be a part of the, the, the conversation of the people, and it didn't just mean white or black. It meant together. It was a bunch of people living together, denying each other that they are related. There are no people in the world closer than the black guy and the white guy in America. We have all the same DNA. Why we've been in each other's lives for five hundred years. We have to know each other better than, than the tribe, the Hauser tribe, knows the Igbo tribe. Because why they build up walls, they got different languages. We here speaks the same language. We have to understand each other. We have the same sickness. We know what it means to bleed. Why? Because we had to stand together. They ain't going to drop no black bum or white bum. They dropping a bum. Right. right. Bums don't discriminate. It's, don't discriminate. Yeah. So... We don't know no other language. We speak one language here. That's why I said we know each other better than any people in the world. I wanted to get that attention because I think we're dumb to the fact that we are related. In my family, I had people look almost as, in terms of color, there was as light as you, with green eyes, red hair, and the only way I knew that they were related to me is when they spoke. Hey, cuz. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. You know, because they spoke that, that patois and that broken French and down there in Louisiana. And so we all eat rice and beans and we all ate the same thing. Yeah. We all, we, we know each other. And so that's why I call it some dumb hunky. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the book is great. Uh, your story is truly just one of the most incredible life stories of anybody I've I've known. I can't wait to see the show. And what about the film? The film, we have a guy, uh, there's a company, uh, uh, ICM? ICM. There's an agent there, and there's a guy here, a lawyer, Al Rosenstein, is working on the film along with him, and we believe that they can come up with the funds to do do this. Mm -hmm. Clearly understanding after doing big events that these things takes time. Yeah. Because nobody want to put up the first money. No. You know, <laughs> everybody want to get 
in the derby with the winning horse. Yeah, of course. But they don't know that till they win. But we feel very certain that we have a winning formula here because of what the contents is about. We believe that we're telling the truth about the music. We're telling the truth about the youth movement. And the historical values are so great that people are going to come to see it. We're trying to get, trying to connect the uh, the hip hop community, the pop community all together. Because if you don't talk about history, you never know what the future will bring you. You have to compare the history with the future. We're trying to show why things the way they are today, and what made them happen yeah. through Lord and Miss Claudia. And we think we've got a great script. Nobody has turned the script down. What's so amazing, we haven't got any negative from no place. And uh, it's been that way with the script for the last couple of years. And we understand and accept that it takes time. And we're finally at the road of getting the play done by the last of April, the 1st of May of this year. We'll have the first reading. That's Lord great. Of it's really great. I know, you know, when we first met uh, through Don, uh, he introduced... He introduced me to you and Phil Ramone at the time, who was working on the show, and Phil since passed. So you guys have had, you've been at this for a while with ups and downs and twists and turns, and it takes a long time to get this stuff made, but congratulations on the progress, because it sounds like a fantastic show. Well, I thank you, I thank you very much. I remember clearly the day we met up here in Richfield. I still don't know how you, coming out how you would remember <laughs> I remember that. You shouldn't remember that. You meet a million people. Yeah, but Don Tiggy introduced me to quite a few people. In fact, he implanted the idea in my head that it should be a play of film. He said, your life story is so interesting. It should be a play of film. Let the people know how all this stuff happened with your first record. Yeah. Well, and, that's uh, that's why I wanted to talk so much about the first, about how this stuff just started. Because these stories are so rich and colorful and detailed and the names and everything that you remember and if we're not sharing them, like you said, we're not going to know the history of it. And this is just that the first recording and the circumstances around that had enormous influence and repercussions for music, for race relations, for society, for the development of music, for all these different things. And if we don't know these origin stories, which is why I wanted to really talk about those and hear them, we just would never know. Well, that's right. Because when Lorna Miss Claudia came on the scene, the biggest teen idol was Shirley Temper and Mickey Rooney. There was no black. Joe Lewis was our only hero. And Lorna Miss Claudia changed all of that. And Lorna Miss Claudia went on to be sell a million records. Been recorded 178 times by the biggest rock stars in the world. You know, the Beatles, Elvis, Fats Domino, did Little Richard. Uh, and that was and that was the first record that was to, a, sell, a million to sell a million copies yes. in the country. The next million selling copy was Impossible by Perry Como four years later. Wow. Yeah. And then Staggerly. What happened was the night was clear and the moon was yellow. Is <laughs> when Ted Logan took me to the hospital. I was in the hospital in Korea looking out of the window. And the night was clear. And the night was clear. And the moon was yellow. I did it for the field grade offices, you know. Because wow. I had to entertain them. But that went on to have, what, three and a half million records sold? Before it slowed time? down. Before it slowed down. Yeah. And God knows how many now. It has been recorded over 429 times since I did Staggerly, yes. Well, uh, you were rightfully inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. <laughs> I congratulate you on all this stuff. This is just amazing. And 
I really appreciate you taking the time to do it. Well, I thank you. Yeah. I really do. Appreciate it. <laughs> all right. Hey, just a quick word before we go here. Thanks to all of you for listening. Thanks to Chris Carlone, to Don Teague, Lynn Hodgson, Peter Gassienica, and the good people at Kicking Horse Coffee for keeping me caffeinated during this. And of course, to my very special guest, Mr. Lloyd Price. Take care, guys. See you next time. <laughs>